So good to see you guys this morning. Well, if you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, how many of you guys know what special day on the calendar in God this is? Palm Sunday. All right. A few people paying attention. It's hard to pay attention to the calendar, isn't it? Matthew chapter 21 records this event. Actually, all the Gospels record this event, which not all the Gospels record every event. So this is a significant event taking place today as we enter into Holy Week. I've titled the message today as a part of next week as well, Holy Week, an introduction to death and new life. So let's look together in your Bibles. Hopefully you have a Bible with you this morning of some sort. Matthew chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, sounds like a big day, a big event. If we had been in that moment, Lord, we probably would have been just like the disciples we would have lacked an understanding of just what a big event this was. We would have been like them, not realizing just five days from now, this one being heralded, this one we have been following is going to die. That would have been a shock. That's not what it felt like entering the city. But yet, Lord, there was something about death waiting in this week. That was so important to understand. And Lord, it's important today for us to understand there's something about death that we need to see from your perspective, not from our own and not from this world's. So Lord, help us this morning as we look into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, interesting setting. If you follow Jesus' ministry, um, He and his disciples for three years now, they've been traveling around. They've been throughout parts of Israel, but most of their ministry has been in the secondary outlier areas, right? So they've been visiting small towns and villages all throughout. They've spent very little time in Jerusalem. And you got to get Jerusalem to get the feel for what this had to have felt like. When you show up in Jerusalem, uh, it's like, you know, those of you who've ever been to New York City, have you ever seen so many buildings in one place? I mean, have you ever seen such a mass of activity when whatever town or city you come from, it just gets dwarfed in comparison, right? So when they show up here, this, this, this setting of Jerusalem and this region of the world, it's part Wall Street, New York. It's part Hollywood Boulevard, it's part Washington, D.C. capital, right? you got all things happening. The movers and the shakers of the world that you live in, they live in Jerusalem, right? It is a political power source. It is a financial source for the region. The popular people, the paparazzi type people live there in Jerusalem. 
And it's interesting that we get right here, the question, all this noise is happening, and the question from the crowds who are shouting, who is this? (laughs) They don't even get who he is. And they have to be told, this is who he is. You remember when Jesus gets betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? He, uh, there's a, he has to be kissed by Judas so people know who he is. Did you ever take, thought that was weird? It's like, you don't know who Jesus is? They don't know who Jesus is. They don't recognize him coming in town. Now, if he had been Caiaphas, the high priest, coming in town, they'd have known him. If he'd have been Pontius Pilate riding up in his horse into Jerusalem on that day, they'd have known him. Uh, if he'd have been Herod, and, you know, Herod was kind of like, you know, watching an episode of The Crown, uh, you know, the king of, of Israel with all of his wives and all of his weird stuff going on in his life. He, he was like a, a, a strange episodes to watch. But Jesus, they don't even know who he is. And there's this loud noise because in reality, the Messiah of the world just walked into the gates of your city. Can you get how big this truly is and how much is being overlooked in this moment? Right? The, the great city streets, the shops that line the streets, these monuments that are built there, the looming uh, temple that's built in Jerusalem, all made out of stuff that this one spoke into existence, just walked into this setting. But you know, for anybody to get who he is, some things are going to have to die. And that's what this week features. Right, so what today I want to do with you is just give you a quick little peek into what was it like? Jesus shows up. He stays in the suburbs, if you will. Jesus is going is to stay in Kenner, all right, when he comes to Jerusalem. He's not staying in, in, in the French Quarter. He's staying out in Kenner. And he's coming in and out of the city uh, as he's there throughout the week. And so you just get this interaction. Jesus interacts with a number of things. And each of his interactions are going to feature an element of death in them. And he's going to make that very clear in what he says as well. So I want to point out three things that need to die for the Messiah to really be understood. One, uh, man's substitutes for a savior are going to need to die for this Messiah to be received. Secondly, the Messiah himself, the Son of God, is going to need to die. And third, those who would follow him are going to need to die as well. All right, so let's look real quickly at man's substitutes are going to need to die. So as soon as Jesus gets in town here, it's probably the way in which Matthew lays things out. Sunday is the triumphant entry that we just read. And then probably the next day, Monday, is probably verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Listen to this, this is crazy. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things, catch that phrase, that he did. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Indignant. Wait, is that word indignant? That's that's your feelings about the wonderful things? When they saw the wonderful things, they were indignant. You guys can tell right now, something needs to die in this setting for you to get what's going on right in front of your face. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't waste any time uh, kind of killing some stuff, right? He walks into the temple and he sees this, this thing that God created. The temple is God's creation. He has taken something from the blueprints of heaven and he gave a revelation to Moses and he said, Moses, what you saw in the heavenlies build on earth. And he built this thing called the tabernacle and the tabernacle became the temple. God had something in mind. God had this place 
where humanity could come and commune and interact with God. They could come and acknowledge their brokenness before him. They could come and put their hands on on an animal and confess their sin and know that God was in this. They weren't making this up, right? I mean, you you, you travel throughout the world. you, You see, I mean, I've traveled in... Mexico and seen voodoo take place where people try to deal with their sins through little sacrifices. You come across these little places where they built an altar and they're trying to sacrifice something in order to deal with the guilt in their own heart. God said, hey, I know, you're, I know you feel guilty. I'm going to build a place where you can come. And this is how you deal with your guilt. You place your guilt and your shame and your sin on this lamb. And this lamb is going to give its life up and shed its blood for you. And then a priest is going to take this to a place that you can't go because of your own sinfulness. And he's going to access the presence of God on your behalf. And he's going to be able to come out from that place and pronounce on you the forgiveness of God. You come here and you do that. And you come here and you commune with your God. You come here and you pray. You come here with a mindset that there's a God over every nation who's doing something for every people. And you come cry out to him and you be mindful that the gospel needs to go to the ends of the earth and every nation needs to hear about this God. So you come and you pray and you intercede for the nations. And Jesus walks into the temple that day and he can't find that stuff going on. He said, you guys have turned what God gave you into something else. How many times is that the story of religion, religious things? Something that looks like what God created. It still looked a little bit like what God created, but at its heart, it had become something else. And Jesus walks in. And turns stuff upside down and says, that substitute needs to die. And then right after that, verse 18, there's an unfruitful fig tree. And the fig tree often is this representation of this nation of Israel who belonged to God. Verse 18, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it. Nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. All right, so this temple thing just got introduced to, I mean, his disciples are watching him. This can't stay like this. This needs to die. And then he comes to the nation of Israel, represented in this fig tree. said, you know, you look like a fig tree. You get leaves on you like a fig tree. But right now, you should have fruit, but you don't. And he curses the fig tree, right? This is Jesus introducing this nation of drifters who have misplaced the calling of God in their lives. That needs to die. And sure enough, Jesus introduces that tree to death. Matthew 21, we go a little further. This is all happening on the front ends of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, verse 23. And when he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Can you get what a crazy question that is? The... uh, The owner of the company just showed up. And, you know, he came in and he fired two secretaries and he's on his way to the CEO and he's next. And he's got a little bit of an attitude about him. And you bump into this guy in the hallway. Who are you? That's that's what's going on here. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it sad? Isn't it a miserable experience? That the demons didn't have that problem when Jesus showed up and got around them. We know who you are, they would say. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They recognize his authority. Roman centurions who didn't grow up with the Bible. Being led and taught about the things of God from the Old Testament. But when they encountered Jesus, they recognized his authority. Remember the centurion? Jesus, I need need you to heal my servant. 
And Jesus starts to come to us, oh, no, 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 you don't need to come to my house to do that. I'm a man under authority. I get authority. And you, you could do it from right here. And I'm not worthy. And he gets the whole picture here. He gets his unworthiness and he gets God's power resonant in this man. He gets authority here. But these guys, they don't get authority. And for Jesus to be the Messiah, for him to show up in our lives, uh, not getting authority, that's going to need to die. You can't follow a savior. You can't surrender your life to him if you don't get who's in authority here. The second you think you're still in authority, you will not follow Jesus. You will modify Jesus. You will invite him to save the things in your life that you give him permission to save, but you will, you will not surrender to him the way this is calling us to. There was a, a disunity amongst the religious people. That's kind of a new concept, isn't it? We've never seen that before. Matthew 22 puts on display a group of leaders, Sadducees and Pharisees, and, and Jesus gets around them in Holy Week. And this is what he encounters, right? Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Right? Here, you know, here God has sent words of life to this crowd, to these individuals. Their strategy is not how can we receive. Their strategy is how can we challenge? How can we trip him up? How can we put him in a bad spot? Verse 16, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the truth of God, truth, the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? All right, this is only going to get outdone by the next stupid thing that they do over in verse 23. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, this, all right, both of these situations, if you, you got to get the full idiocy what's going on here. They're not making this up for the first time. This is the stuff they always talk about. This is the stuff that trips up their conversations. This is, where they, this is their go-to conflict moments, paying taxes to Rome. It's a big conflict. And whether or not the resurrection, hey, we've got this resurrection riddle. See if you can solve this riddle. If there's a resurrection, solve this riddle. And here's the riddle. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his, for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. And after all of them, the woman died. So in the resurrection, uh, who's married to her in the resurrection, huh? <laughs> Let's see what he does with this. Jesus answers and said, you're wrong. <laughs> because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Right? So their problem isn't their stupid riddle. It's that they don't know God and they don't know the Bible. Can I, can I just warn us? Because Jesus is going to spend a massive chunk. You move into chapter 23 and a massive chunk, 36 verses. That's a lot of real estate in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. When you look at how little the Bible spends on certain topics, 36 verses in Matthew chapter 23 are going to be about bringing a pronouncement of woes upon the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. These religious leaders who are spending all their time on secondary matters. They have missed the big deal standing right in front of them. They want to know about taxes. They want to know about riddles. And then Jesus pronounces on this whole system a coming death to it. In Matthew 23, the end of that chapter, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers 
her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Can you imagine Jesus has been walking through the streets of this Washington, D.C. feeling city with all of its form, with all of its monuments, and Jesus has been with his disciples interacting with it. And, he, and his word to describe it is desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple, right? I mean, again, these guys are in New York City, right? So they're like, it's all so magical. Jesus, look at the building, right? I mean, they're impressed. There's stuff here to look at. But he answered them, you see all this, do you? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Can I just tell you, boys, this is all going to die. So this is Jesus interacting with a setting where there, there is so much wrong, so much out of step with God. So much that's been reinvented. It is it has kept its address in the same zip code with God. There's some stuff that sound like things God said before. Some of the characters are still associated with things that God has said, but they have misplaced God himself. There is this massive moment where where are they missing the point in the worst way of the one who has just walked in to spend the week with them. In your outline, I said, notice how entrenched they are and what has made sense to them up till this moment. The creator of the universe the one who holds every ounce of existence within his power, all the days of eternity are within the one standing on your dusty streets. And you want to ask him what? Uh, should we be paying taxes to Caesar? Hey, 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 guys, let's see what he says about that. You want to ask a stupid riddle question? Can I almost, if, if we fast forwarded into the modern setting and, and Jesus came riding into Washington, D.C. on a Harley Davidson, <laughs> go over there to that bar and get that Harley and bring it over here. And he comes riding into the Capitol and he gets off and puts the kickstand down and he walks up the Capitol steps and the crowds gather. What kind of questions you think he would get? <laughs> Jesus, do you think we should be wearing these masks or not? (laughs) That's what you want to ask? That's what sits at what's most important for you to ask? Seriously? You have audience with the Son of God. You got any better questions for him than that? Not really, because we're just sort of missing the moment aren't we? Missing the moment, aren't we? Yes, they were. And yes, we are. See, there there are some things that for us to get Jesus, for us to get him as the Savior, as our Messiah, some things have to die. I grew up with some things. You grew up with some things, right? I grew up with religion in my family. I I knew the buzzwords about Jesus and what he had done. I I could tell you the storyline. I I couldn't name all the apostles, but I knew there was 12 and could name a few of them. I knew that there was some moral elements to this life and that there were some things to be avoided and there's some, some things to do. You know, at some level, I was okay accommodating some of those things. I was entrenched. I was loyal. 
I had family connections. This is what my mom believed. This is what my dad believed. So, okay, I'm believing something like it. This is what my uncles and my aunts believed. They were going through these motions, etc. But, but if you could look at my life from a heart level, not just from an exterior level, right? From an, and from an exterior level, I had leaves. I went to church. I, there were certain things I wouldn't do. But from a heart level, I didn't have any fruit. I had a system of religion. And then one day, I picked up a Bible for the first time in my life. And it's like another voice rode into town and began to speak to me. And from the fall of 1978, I spent time almost daily just reading through the Bible. The New Testament. I only had the New Testament. And this other voice kept messing with my world. This living voice was messing with my world. And it made me start wondering about my own condition, about my own life, about things that I believed, and why did I believe them? And I didn't know that, and I'd never read that before. And what does that mean? Suddenly, a different voice was introducing something to me. This, uh, this substitute religious life that I had created was going to need to die for me to know the living God. Now, let me just be totally honest. I don't, you know, whatever your background is, your background is, all right? I grew up Catholic. I'm from the city of New Orleans here. I grew up locally. Uh, so I'm like everybody else. That, that's how I grew up. So, but, but let me just say this. Whatever way you grew up, uh, you grew up around some ideas that you could have easily adopted from the outside in rather than from the inside out. And I, I'll say this, you know, a couple of my kids are here. I'd say this to my own children. Just because you grew up around something doesn't mean you got it. You can have leaves on the outside and be dead. Not have any life on the inside producing fruit that looks like when Jesus gets around you, You're going to want to know that Jesus. You're going to want to be drawn to this Messiah. Something in your heart goes off towards him. There is some kind of affection awakened toward him. You're not just here because that's what your family does every week or most weeks. Nobody attends every week anymore. You just kind of go to church from time to time. You can have leaves and you can have Jesus come to your tree And you can have a temple set up with all kinds of stuff that looks like something God was sort of in. And you have Jesus turn your tables all upside down and saying, you have missed the point. And this is going to have to die. Mark records this. All the the gospel writers, again, record. We're going to hear from almost all of them today. Mark records this entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday this way in Mark 11. He said, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen to this. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. For Jesus Christ to reign in the highest some things are going to have to die. And not just out there. One of the strangest things that's going to have to die is the Messiah himself. The one who shows up in Jerusalem riding there. He is there for a purpose. He is there to die. Right? So we pick up John's version of this triumphant entry in John chapter 12. The next day... Just skim through this quickly. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, right? The next day, he's been staying in Kenner. He's coming back in town, though. Down in verse, where am I at here? Wait, I skipped into the wrong spot. All right, so six days, sorry, verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, comes to Bethany, where Lazarus was, 
whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So, right, so he's, he's hanging with his friends, staying there in their place, just outside of Jerusalem. Now listen to the condition of things here. When the large crowd, verse nine, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, right? Remember Lazarus is the star of the show now. Lazarus was dead and he's been resurrected. And he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, right? So let's, let's work on a plan to kill Jesus, but let's kill Lazarus as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is an interesting thing about how deeply this stuff gets inside of you. There's a way to do this religion thing, and this Jesus just doesn't fit. Not only that, but we need to destroy anything that would point us away from the way we do things. So let's kill Lazarus uh, as well. While we're about to kill Jesus, we'll kill Lazarus too. In verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And down in verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone out after him. So here is this other voice. And these guys are so entrenched in what they believe. They can't even listen for a moment. Lots of people are curious about who is this Jesus? All right, this is, this is probably Monday, right? So we've had Sunday entrance. Monday, verse 20 of chapter 12. This is the next thing Jesus wants to talk about. In this moment. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Why is Jesus in Jerusalem in this moment? Why has he come to Jerusalem? If you back away into the religious world that they lived in, but if you back away into our religious world, why is Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem, holding court, making statements, pronouncing things? He come to Jerusalem to the big glitzy city, to the epicenter of trends and thoughts, because he is there as a social reformer. He's there to hold some meetings to give humanity ideas about how to improve the way they do life. He's there to address the issues of brokenness among you and to figure out a way for you to get along with each other better. He's there to tell you how to love one another. He's got an audience with Caiaphas, He can talk to Herod, Pontius Pilate. He has crowds there before him. And and his message is, all you need is love. I'm sorry, that was John Lennon's message. But it's something like that. Is you guys would be doing so much better. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? You just need to love each other. Don't you understand? Can, can, Can you point to me the meeting that he has? Where his message is, you guys, you just need to try harder. You just need to get it together. Can can we get the big crowd together? Can I give a really moving, touching speech that reaches into the corners of your heart and tells a story? Maybe I can put something up on a screen about this woman way over here and all that she's gone through. But yet you hate her because she's not from your tribe and she's not like you. But here's her story and your heart begins to go, oh, oh. Yeah, I need to stop hating people just because they're different than me. Jesus, this has been an incredible meeting. I'm so glad I came. 
Do you think that's why Jesus is there? Can I just tell you, most of the unbelieving world thinks that's why Jesus is there? Jesus is a motivational speaker with really high credentials. <laughs> you know, he's got a great resume. He's the ultimate purest person who ever lived, but he's basically here to tell us how to create a better world, isn't he? Or is he? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it abides alone. Jesus, why are you here? I'm here to die. Why does that matter? Can I tell you, it, it, I don't want to say it's the only thing that matters, but if you don't get that, it is the only thing that matters. Because if you miss that point, if you make the massive mistake of turning Jesus into a public speaker with a good moral angle, you have destroyed the revelation of God. He is in Jerusalem in Holy Week to die. One of the most important things for you and I to come to grips with, how does this make you feel when 2 Corinthians says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Jesus, what are you doing here in Jerusalem? In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is very different than y'all need to learn how to get along with each other. You need to learn how to relate to another person who's not like you, doesn't have your story. Do we not need to learn to do that? No, we do. But why is Jesus in Jerusalem? To tell us to do that? As a matter of fact, he's going to spend very little time telling anybody to do that. He is there to die. What is significant about his death? Please don't misread the story. The story is not Jesus shows up with high moral platitudes, gives some moving speeches, gets on the wrong end of some bad people and gets killed. Do you know that this Jesus said, no one, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He is there to lay his life down. Not because he couldn't do anything about the bad people who had put out a hit on him. What a massive mistake we make when we make Jesus into a guy with good advice who got killed by the bad people in the world. He's there to lay his life down. He's there to die. Why? Because there is a problem in this world between humanity and God. And there's only one solution to that. The Son of God himself, the Messiah long awaited, he will have to die in our place. His death is central to everything. Because believe it or not, the biggest problem, the biggest problem on earth is not a black and white issue. It's not a China versus America issue. It's not a wealthy versus a poor issue. These are not the biggest problems in the world. The biggest problems in the world are an us and a God issue. That's the biggest problem in the world. And if you don't get that this God is a certain way that requires his own son to step in between us and him and take on himself our punishment for the forgiveness of our sins. But you know, if they had been walking with the temple correctly and not making money off the deal, they would have got this because every day that you came to the temple and you brought an offering, you were acknowledging, God, I'm at odds with you. The life that I've been living, it's for my reasons, for my purposes. You don't show up well in that. I mistreat people. I'm selfish. I'm prideful. I'm hurtful. That's just the facts of my life. But I'm here because I know that that matters to you. And I'm here to seek your forgiveness. Every day that they walked in the temple, that's what God had designed for them to experience. Their need for restoration to God. They had turned it into something else. And now they don't get it. Jesus 
needs to die in your place. Listen, Jesus is the ultimate good thing that's going to have to die in this story. Right? And that's going to be the real battle here. If you and I can walk away from Holy Week with anything about an accurate understanding of death, is we're going to have to embrace the idea that some things that are good are going to have to die. Right? Well, Peter didn't like this idea. Right? When Jesus began to break the news to them that I'm going to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen, they're going to kill me. The disciples didn't like that idea. The Bible actually says that it was concealed from them. So they kind of didn't really get what he was saying. So when they show up in, in Jerusalem, they're not like pulling out their guns and like, okay, this is it, right? They're going to come take down Jesus. They don't kind of get what's going on here. And, and, and even Peter opposes the idea. May it never be, Lord. And he opposes the idea that something good would have to die. And, and Peter still doesn't get it, right? I mean, they're in the garden. And, and you know, the servants of the high priest are there, and they're, they're going to take Jesus into custody. They go to grab Jesus, and Peter still doesn't get it. Pulls the sword out, whacks the ear off of the guy who's reaching out for Jesus. So you and I are not alone. We don't want to let good things die. The problem is we, we've got these substitute things that we call good that we need to let them die. Right? These guys here in Jerusalem... The reason why a bunch of Jews could rise up and oppose and dispose of the long-awaited Messiah was because they had so much invested in something else. You, you, you need to catch the mafia setting that is in Jerusalem. This is organized crime is what it is. And they've worked deals These leaders of the religious nation of Israel, they've worked deals to get where they are. They've got a money-making machine going on here. They're keeping the Romans happy. They're kind of happy. There's some people that aren't happy, but hey, the power brokers are happy. We're good with this. We need to keep all this in play. And then Jesus comes along and he's going to mess it all up. Jesus, we got a good thing going on here, man. I don't even know. I'm not even sure who you are, but I don't want you messing up my good thing. That's what happens when he walks in, right? This, this is John chapter 11, right? So we're just before John chapter 12 and the outbreak of what's happening here in Jerusalem, John 11. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. I mean, I, I love the stupidity here. This dude's acting. He's got a resume like the Messiah. What are we to do? Well, I don't know. Believe in him. <laughs> just a thought. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And here's the real deal. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We got a good thing going on. Jesus, don't come mess with it. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better. I got to love his words. It is better. Don't all of us go with better? The second you can make an argument for something being better, that's what you're going with. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Well, dude, you just don't get it. The whole nation is going to perish under the judgment of God. You don't get it. You don't get from where the real danger is coming. You think your real problem is the Romans. And you want a system that will protect you from that. You're looking in the wrong direction, dude. Let me just say one shock moment for us here today. I think I wrote this in your outline. If I didn't, I should have. The reason so many Christians can't get along with each other today is because they have so much invested in their substitute saviors. And we don't all share the same savior. Oh, I know, technically we do. I know, yeah, technically Jesus, yeah. Well, they all share, technically there'd be a Messiah who would come, son of David, they even pronounced the right titles on him when he came in. But in their affections, in the world of their hearts, Their savior was coming from somewhere else. It wasn't that guy riding in, the son of David. Yeah, son of David coming in on the donkey. That's not the savior we're looking for. We're looking for a savior who can do something real, Keith, okay? He can show up in the real spaces of life. 
And he can do something right here, right now for the real problems that are in this world. All right, so, the, so here's, here's what's dividing the body of Christ because we're at war over a savior. The savior of politicians and political parties. Right, some of us believe that a political angle will do what for us? Will save us. Save our lives from getting worse. Save our country from slipping into a worse place. Right? We, we believe there's a, there's a certain angle on how you do that that'll save us. Wait, 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 wait. You believe that angle will save us? What is wrong with you? You know this angle will save us and we go to war. Right? The savior of the middle class lifestyle. There's a lot of us who the traditions, like I, I grew up in a tradition. I grew up being introduced to a way of life. I grew up believing and being told certain things were good. I watched my parents be at peace and I watched them freak out. And it had to do with, with their level of security. It had to do with how well they could provide. It had to do with the future of education, whether they could send their children to a private school, whether they could afford certain things, whether one day my dad could retire. I mean, the whole good of life was laid out and it was the doctrine of the middle class. And I learned to call that good. And now I'm looking for a savior who will help preserve that. And I don't want anybody messing with my stuff in that category. I don't want to see anybody get elected who might mess up my 401k plan. Because I'm thinking that saves me. You understand? I'm looking to the things about my middle class comfortable life that will save me. Are you looking for that too? No? Yeah? We might be in agreement. You looking for that too? We might could have fellowship together. You looking for that? The savior of conservative moralism. Somehow we just believe that our lives are going to be saved. Maybe Jesus really was this life coach. Right? He's there in Jerusalem. He's a life coach. He's there to just improve everyone's morals. And if, he, if Jesus could just change the morals of our country, that would just save us from what? You know, the inconvenience of my children hearing somebody curse. You know, I'm just looking for a savior that does stuff like that. Okay. The savior of the civil rights movement. The 60s and 70s and into today. There's an emphasis in a category that feels like if that could just be done right, it would save us. Now listen, am I saying these things aren't important at all? No, they involve human beings made in the image of God. They involve the ways of life of people who are being affected, crushed by life, mistreated, hurt by others. Do these things matter? Yes, They don't matter at the level of who is your savior. The one who rides into Jerusalem on that day, he is the savior of the universe. You're asking the wrong questions because you're looking for the wrong saviors. It's not about whether or not you pay taxes to Rome. And it's not about whatever tax bracket you and I fall into or whether or not that dude in the White House is going to adjust our taxes a certain way. Does that matter to us? Well, yes, it matters, but not at a savior level. Not looking for that to save me. I'm looking for the one who came riding into Jerusalem on this day in history. And he was a savior who more than anything else, what he was there to do was to reconcile me to God. Listen, for, for me to embrace that right now, some things are going to have to die, right? For the body of Christ to have unity around that one Savior, some things are going to have to die. But, you know, this is not new, right? This is the third thing that needs to die. Followers of Christ are going to have to die themselves, right? When Jesus, first order of business, second day in Jerusalem, and some Greeks walk up to him, and he has a conversation with his disciples, and he says in John 12, The hour, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. All right, so we know that pertains to why Jesus is in Jerusalem, because he's going to be that grain of wheat. 
who's going to, if you will, get buried into the soil of all the corruption in Jerusalem. That's what he's going to get buried in. The stinky, dirty soil of the corruption of Jerusalem is that seed going to get buried in, but it's going to come out of the ground with power and a resurrected life, and it's going to bear fruit to the ends of eternity, right? But he's going to be buried. Now, this is where it, it calls on us in the next thing he says, verse 25. Whoever, whoever, not just Jesus, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world, why? Because he's looking for a life in another world, will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. So Jesus isn't there just explaining to them, I'm in Jerusalem to die. The next thing he says is, and if you're going to follow me, you're going to die too. So here's Holy Week for us. It is an introduction to death. It spends a lot of those five days interacting with the the topic and the issue of death. Next week, we get to celebrate the new life that it introduces to us. But the five days of Holy Week are an introduction to things that need to die for this Messiah to actually show up and make much of a difference in our lives. So this morning, I want us to celebrate communion together on Thursday evening of the week that Jesus is entered into in Holy Week, right? We know Thursday evening, he would sit down with his disciples after having all these conversations, and he would be hours away at that moment from death. Death is at the doorstep, right? And interesting, isn't it interesting that the meal that they're eating is the Passover meal? When way back when that was inaugurated and it was trying to teach us something, death literally was at the doorstep, wasn't it? What was about to take place was going to take death to another level amongst the earth. And God was giving a lesson. Your problem is not Egypt. Your problem is not your finances. Your problem is not another race. Your problem is with me. On the night of Passover... Where did the death come from that touched human lives? Now listen, this is so unpopular. I feel like the people right now, you're going to turn me out right now. You accidentally joined a YouTube accidentally, and you're thinking, this guy's now going nuts. You're telling me that God was behind the angel of death, that, yeah, well, it was an angel of death. It was God introducing to humanity your problem is you being reconciled to me. That's your problem. It's why you can't get right loving your neighbor without getting right. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because when the all isn't there, it's because it's loving something else. And the second I love something else in the place of loving God, you're going to pay a price for it. You get in my world when I love something else rather than loving God, you will get on the short end of that at some point. God makes this announcement. And Jesus invites his disciples into this announcement, into this death. Right? Let, me, let me put a little spin on what's, what's this concept of death. Let me give a definition for this death. Death is the yielding up of every ounce of will, every future endeavor, every self-preservation effort, every hope for reward, every attempt to produce a good life by our own hands and ingenuity. It is an entrusting of ourselves into an abyss of unknowns because we completely trust our Heavenly Father to make good on his promises. That's what Jesus is doing. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. When he dies, it's an entrusting of ourselves to die death is this posture that entrusts ourselves to God. So here's what I want us to do. As we receive communion, 
We're going to have you guys come up and, and take from the stations that we have. We've got a station over here, a station over here. This just two, Pete? Oh, more? All right, two in the back. Um, so in a moment, I'm going to dismiss you guys to do that. But well, here's, here's a reality, right? This conversation with death was Jesus speaking into things. And I, I wish this was only true in the first century. I wish there was no ground that Jesus could ever speak of that for me is a substitute savior. Is something else that I'm looking to to save me in this world besides him. And so when you come and you get his broken body and the cup representing his blood shed for us, you're holding the emblems of his death to reconcile us to God, to bring to us what ultimately we really needed. And I think it'd be healthy for us in Holy Week to ponder, Lord, in my own heart, anything else being substituted for you right now? Is there anything else of this life, of the things that I crave and I long for and I draw my security from that is a substitute for you? You gave your life to reconcile me to God so that he could be everything that I would ever, ever need in this life. Lord, is there anything that's become a substitute savior for me that has to die for me to really receive the beauty of what this is? And that's what I want you to take back to your seat with you. Ponder as you take the emblems. Um, I repeat, I have no idea how to best dismiss these guys. Just free for all? I thought administrator meant like gifted ability to organize things. I, I could have come up with that. All right. Uh, as you will, keep some distance from folks to respect whether they would like for you to keep some distance from them, but make your way to the tables. Please take a bread and the cup and return to your seat. Please don't take that yet. We're going to celebrate that together in just a moment. And filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty sin lose all their guilty I'll sing thy power 
Last night that Jesus would spend with his disciples, this was the cornerstone of that evening. Jesus reached back to a meal that had been eaten for generations and generations that celebrated. It was a living lesson that God had given to them and deposited in them. That there was a God to whom all men were accountable. And that God was righteous And he, when he comes, and he will come and exert the judgment that rightly he will bring on humanity. There is a way to escape that judgment. It's going to be through the broken body and the blood of a lamb. Smear that blood over the lentils of your home, and this judgment will pass over you. I don't not mean to be crass here, but you know whether Egypt was in economic thriving in that moment or whether they were going into a great depression, whether the ruler of that country was in a good mood or a bad mood, whether he was doing a good job or a bad job, can I just tell you that blood over those doorposts was the most important thing in the universe happening in that moment because it was teaching humanity that there was a way to be right with our God. There was a way to be able to be near to him. There was a way to be able to bring all your guilt and your brokenness to him. And he would take it from you. And he would pronounce his mercy and his forgiveness over your life. There was a way for that to happen. That's what was happening in that moment. And that's what was happening in this meal. So as you and I hold and we see this broken body, it was, isn't it crazy? The infinite God of the universe fit in something of a body not to come give us a talk but to have a heartbeat and blood flowing in his veins that could be drained and taken from him let's take the bread without the shedding of blood, the Bible says there would be no forgiveness. Isn't forgiveness perhaps the greatest thing you could ever know in your life? All the noise in our soul that says everything's wrong, I'm wrong, my life is wrong, it doesn't mean anything, I'm out of bounds, I don't, I don't matter. All those voices inside of us. The Son of God comes and sheds his blood so that the barrier could be broken down so that God's voice could be heard in our lives. Forgiveness and God no longer with an ear turned away from us. Because the Bible actually does say that God does turn away from the sinfulness and corruption of this world. But this blood tore that down so that the face of God shines upon our lives now. And all that noise on the inside of us now has to listen to another voice a voice that calls us sons and daughters, a voice that says, welcome home, a voice that runs to the end of the driveway when we return, full of affection and love for us. And you and I would never have known that if this blood hadn't torn down the wall and restored us. Let's drink of the cup. sing. Let's stand together. Let's close singing a portion of this song again, thanking God for this holy week that has introduced us to a death that has mattered for us all. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its Church 
church of God be safe to sin no more be safe to sin no more be safe to sin no more till all the ransomed church of God be safe to sin come to an end, Lord. Lord, when we dive figuratively and we, in our spiritual sense and when we dive literally, Lord, we know that one day we will be with you, God. And we look forward to that day, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Oh, no, I don't care. 